1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We also have a guest from Scope Ratings, Managing Director Sam Theodore, and down the line from New York, our US banking editor Ben McClanahan. Today we'll be talking about Goldman Sachs as it attempts to become something like a universal bank Secondly, looking at cocos and the latest wrangling in Europe over the usefulness of these instruments. And finally, a look at UK and European banks and why the Brits might not be doing so well as their continental rivals. First, though, to Goldman Sachs, the epitome of the securities firm, which has been ploughing that furrow for many decades, is turning to consumer lending, consumer savings. It's pretty extraordinary stuff, Ben.
2: Yeah, as you say, most of it's 150-year history. Gold has been focused on the rich and the powerful, and now through this acquisition of GE Capital's deposit books, about $16 billion of it, it now has access to an entirely new client base, and it's a significant moment for the Wall Street plan.
1: And it's promising to be very competitive, paying 1.05% on online instant access deposits, which I think is the highest rate in the market, paying 2% for five-year money. Why is it going into this whole new area?
2: Well, it'd be goldman the official line is very clear it's all about funding retail depositors are the stickiest most dependable funders of banking activities around so it's going all out to get them and this rare opportunity of course ge carving up its entire ge capital empire presents a good opportunity to get in there and to potentially explore a new business area but i think there's also the income side of things as well the p and could be affected ultimately by this business consumer lending as you know has terrific margins It's a new area for Goldman. There is some scepticism whether it has the skill set to do it. But it's certainly worth trying because the past few courses for Goldman have been pretty rough.
1: And what's the feeling on the ground in the US in terms of brand and Goldman Sachs' ability to appeal to mainstream consumers with a brand that's been considered pretty synonymous with, well, sometimes Wall Street sharp practice?
2: A byword for excess and all the stuff with the vampire squid um, jamming its blood funnel down the throat of humanity. Yeah, that has been some very negative associations with this brand. That's the famous uh,
1: Rolling Stone description of what Goldman Sachs was.
2: That's, of course, not on FTV, that's Matt Taibbi. Yes. Who's, I think, he's back with Rolling Stone now. But Goldman has had image problems, so that's fair to say. But it's now presenting this as GSBank.com. Previously, the private banking section of Goldman, you had to be a multiple millionaire to get in. And now anyone with as little as $1 on deposit can access this service. I've spoken to a few people that there is skepticism amongst some of the online vendors But if Goldman really wants to use this as a springboard into the online lending business, then it could struggle because it just doesn't have the institutional memory to do that. But I think there is a universe of depositors that will be attracted by Goldman's connotations of stability. The fact that it's been here for decades and decades and it survived the crisis, you can question its tactics to do so, but uh, it's still here. It's still making money. It has enormous uh, associations of wealth and prestige.
1: Well, that's really helpful background there, Ben. Thank you very much for that. Let me bring the debate back to the studio for a moment. Sam, you were listening to what Ben had to say. Do you share that slightly skeptical view that Ben was saying is evident in the U.S.
3: To some extent, I do, because on the one hand, let's uh, first of all let's remember that Goldman had real problems during the crisis, and actually to uh, save themselves, they had to ask for a bank holding company status and go under the Fed's lender of last resort umbrella. So it's not like they went through the crisis without uh, being hurt. That's of course what gave them the banking license and exactly. possibly the idea to do this. Um, exactly. They're having to be regulated as a bank. So maybe why shouldn't they make the most of it? Absolutely. But on the other hand, supervisors all around the world, including the US, are very keen that retail deposits do not end up funding wholesale assets. So they have to pay a lot of attention to the retail deposits going into consumer loans and not into, for example, whatever wholesale activities Goldman does. So from that angle, I would say that the brand value of an online lender funded with retail deposits is probably no better for Goldman Sachs than for somebody else who just gets into the business now. Martin, on Goldman's timing of
1: getting into consumer lending and this whole consumer market... A sceptic might say that it is all very easy to look at the hefty margins and the great income this could generate when credit conditions are so benign, but it won't always be like that.
4: It won't. We're at a particular point in the cycle with very low interest rates and very low credit losses in general. But you could argue that if you're able to lend at 25% to consumers, then you have plenty of room for quite significant loan losses and you'll still make a profit especially if as Goldman seems planning to do by taking deposits it can undercut the other providers of marketplace lending to consumers by having cheaper funding.
1: Well it's certainly a very interesting test case a bank really going in the opposite direction from many of their rivals which are shifting away from the universal bank approach. We will monitor their progress. Let's turn to our second story of the day. Uh, Look at the cocoa market. Now, this is the contingent convertible debt market. It's basically a European market, which has grown up over the past few years, basically at the behest of regulators who wanted to see another layer of capital put in place, in addition to equity as a kind of hybrid between equity and debt. Martin, you had a story the other day with our capital markets team looking at the extent to which this is a market which regulators are having second thoughts about, particularly because there was a market route at the beginning of the year, a lot of jitters around cocos and their suitability as a capital instrument.
4: Yeah, we're talking about the additional tier one market, which is a form of cocos, and it's what most people mean when they refer to cocos nowadays. There's about 80, 90 billion euros worth of them in issue. They've been issued in the last few years, as you said, as a way for banks to boost their capital levels without issuing equity, which they're resistant to doing because it it dilutes their return on equity. It's the most expensive form of funding. So the story we wrote this week was that one regulator in particular is getting cold feet about AT1s, and it's the European Central Bank and the single supervisory mechanism that supervises all the eurozone banks. And this stems from the incredible period of volatility, in particular in bank shares and cocoa, AT1 markets back in February, when there was a sharp sell-off in both equities and AT1s of European banks Triggered by uncertainty around the regulations that are very complicated, and I don't think we've got time to go into, but that govern whether or not a bank can pay the coupon on its 81. There was uncertainty around particularly Deutsche Bank and whether it could pay the coupon on its AT1, partly linked to German law, partly linked to uncertainty at the European level. And because it made a big loss last year, there was this big uncertainty. So that led to a big sell off. But it wasn't just Deutsche shares and Deutsche Cocos that were hit. It was a lot of other banks were hit by this. And indeed, the market still hasn't truly recovered yet. The spreads are still much wider than they were before that period. And I think, you know, the critics of COCOs, they've got several points that they make. One is that this period of uncertainty and volatility showed that instead of bolstering confidence in banks and acting as this kind of safety buffer, they can actually be pro-cyclical and spread panic among investors, particularly because of this uncertainty around the coupon and whether the coupon will be held. The second point, which is a kind of longer-term theoretical point, is that some people argue, well, these instruments have kind of been superseded by another layer of capital that uh, regulators are forcing banks to hold, which is the gone concern capital. So it's debt that will be transformed into equity in a resolution. So once a bank has got into crisis and been basically put into resolution by the regulator. So that's supposedly at a later stage than COCOs, which trigger a conversion into equity before the bank is supposed to go into resolution. But because the trigger levels for these COCOs is between 5 and 7%, common equity tier one ratio, people are very sceptical that banks will ever be allowed to get to that point before a resolution or some other serious event takes place. So actually, there's real scepticism that these will ever be exercised.
1: And the trigger point you mentioned there was because most of them were issued at a time when that was the regulatory requirement for capital. And of course, now it's far higher. So it's a kind of artificially low trigger. Let me bring Sam in at that point. Do you buy... The criticism, really, that the, the skeptical view that Martin was outlining there.
3: Yeah, to some extent, I do. I think that market investors totally misunderstood this product from day one. And day one for this new uh, generation of uh, Cocos uh, came, I think, in April two thousand thirteen, with the first issues by BBVA, according to the new CRD four language. That's the European. The European uh, uh, translation of Basel three. Yes, and basically you have two major risks with the eighty ones. ones One is the principal conversion or write-down, and this one needs to be tied to the triggers, 5 to 7%, which you mentioned. But the second one is the coupon non-payment risk. And the market focused very much on the first one, on what's the point of non-viability, how far are the banks from the triggers, almost totally ignoring the second risk, that of coupon non-payment. And in time, the first risk, that of uh, principal conversion or write-down, came down because, as you said, banks moved further away from even the 7% high trigger, now is uh, a minuscule trigger. But the coupon non-payment risk became higher because the combined buffer requirement, another regulatory trick which the new regulations came up with, kept increasing and is going to increase further during the next few years. So the demand of banks to have enough funds, additional distributable income, is growing. And a bank like Deutsche, for example, was on the cusp one year ago when they announced a major restructuring and a change of management and major losses for 2015. And then to reassure the market that they'll have enough money to pay the coupon, they said, well, the coupon is going to be paid based on German GAAP, not based on IFRS. And uh, not only the bank, but also the Buffin, the local regulator came up to confirm that which is fine. You
1: mentioned the accounting standards there, but that highlights that in many ways the legal regime for this supposedly pan-European product has been horribly fragmented. That's one of the contributory
3: factors to the market's misunderstanding, arguably, isn't it? There's a kind of very unlevel playing field. Absolutely. And now the market realizes that there's more risk to 81s than principal write-down, and the coupon non-payment risk is a real risk, which can happen. And if based on the rumor of a bank not being able to pay coupons, the market almost totally repriced earlier this year, you can imagine what's going to happen when a bank actually will miss a payment of coupon. The whole market is going to be repriced. And you have to assume that once you have eighty ones in place, not only the top banks will have to issue them, but also the second-tier bank, the third-tier bank. And chances that a coupon will be missed for a second-tier bank are higher than for a first-tier bank.
1: So let me ask one final point on this. Given the issues, given the regulators' nervousness about the product, and given the fact that actually they're a very distinctly European thing, we don't have cocoa in the US for example. We the, do
4: have something like that. It's preferred shares. True they're, which, and they're a long-standing but they instrument. they don't have a trigger
3: <clears throat> and they're easier to understand. They're simpler. And Chinese banks also like to issue Cocos.
1: But we've also got coming in over the next few years probably at a global level the kind of gone concern bail-inable debt that Martin was talking about before. <clears throat> Given all of that is this the end of the road for Cocos? I don't think so. We've seen since
4: February, the markets come back to life a bit. And we've seen UBS, BVA, Rabobank, I think BNP all issue 81s in Europe. Now, they're not all Eurozone banks. Obviously, UBS isn't. And there's also a plan at European Central Bank level to come out with clarification of the rules around when a bank will be forced to hold a coupon and not pay the coupon on its AT1. And that's expected uh, this summer. And it's likely to give the regulator more flexibility around this to try and avoid the accident that Sam was just kind of describing of a bank being forced into having to do this. I would say that that addresses one element of the criticisms around AT1s, but it doesn't address all of them. And as you said, I think there is still this question as to where they fit once you've got TLAC, this total loss-absorbing capacity, an MREL, as it's known at the European level, this gone concern capital, senior debt that can be converted by a regulator in a resolution into equity to refloat a bank. Where do AT1s fit into all of that? And also, this panic transmission mechanism that they seem to play in February, you know, that's still outlying, even though it may be partly resolved by what the ECB and the Commission come out with in June, July.
1: Let's see. So let's move on to our third and final item for the day, a look at the UK banks and their prospects and how they're likely to fare compared with their continental European rivals. Laura and Emma, you wrote a piece on this on Tuesday morning and we've had also on Tuesday morning Stanchart's Chart's first quarter results which actually go in the opposite direction. They've outperformed expectations to some degree, albeit off a fairly low base of expectations. But what evidence are you seeing that the continental Europeans are doing better?
5: Well, first of all, we looked at the overall size of the European banks and the UK banks now, first in 2007, before the crisis hit. And what we found there was that the shrinkage for the profits for the UK banks has been far more severe than what was seen across Europe. And that really points to the fact that the UK banks built up very big exposure to pre-crisis, had to do an awful lot to take those down. And they ended up having to take those down during a market environment, which then turned hostile Partway through, so they ended up selling things at prices which they would really rather not have sold at. So we do see that if you look at it on an absolute earnings basis, last year the earnings of the five big UK banks were down 63% from their 07 levels. If we look at the other 20 or so large European banks, they're only down 33%. So the change in the UK banking landscape has been much, much bigger than in the European one, And when you talk to analysts, investors, people following the sector, they expect the UK banks to have taken a bigger hit in their earnings in the future, too, because they don't really see any prospect of UK bank earnings returning to the levels they were at pre-crisis.
1: And of course, the UK banks have been hit far harder than their continental European rivals by conduct issues, notably mis-selling. Emma?
5: Indeed, the key differentiator really between UK banks and their European rivals is the mis-selling of payment protection insurance, which since 2011 has forced British lenders to earmark about £31 billion to help compensate for this massive cost. And this has really dragged on and weighed on bottom line profits for a lot of banks, notably Lloyds, the biggest lender in the UK, who in the last quarter of 2015 had to set aside a bumper £2.1 billion. A lot of the banks are hoping it's the end of large bulk PPI provisions, but um, it's not certain. We've heard that before.
1: (laughs) That's very true. And finally, what, if anything, can we extrapolate from Stanchart's skeletal numbers on Tuesday morning, particularly the fact that their loan losses came in far less than some people have been predicting? Does that bode well, for example, for other UK banks?
5: Standard Chartered is always a bit of an outlier when it comes to the UK banking results. They're based in the UK, so on that basis we describe them as being a UK bank, but the bulk of their business is international, Asian mainly, so I don't think we can read in very much. We can possibly read in something to other large European banks or to other large American banks who have Asian exposure, but in terms of the read-across for the other domestic UK banks, I think it's pretty minor
1: not even for HSBC.
5: HSBC would be the one which has the biggest read across, but HSBC has a much more balanced book than standard chartered. So they do have large exposure to the UK retail market and the UK business banking market as well.
1: OK, well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura and Emma here in the studio, as well as our guest, Sam Theodore, and also Ben McLanahan from New York. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.